The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Study like the turtle, the tortoise, and the hare. We're going to get there eventually by God's grace. And we are in Mark chapter 8 this morning uh, as we are halfway home, guys. Amen. That's celebration right there, right? Halfway through the book of Mark as we are uh, trekking our way through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, phrase by phrase uh, to God's glory. And we are here, I want to, as, as you're turning, that's page 843 in the Pew Bible, if you forgot it or if you need it, uh, I want to say a special thank you to John Moody, who is now officially a back row Baptist. Uh, John, uh, John always sits in the back corner. If you don't know John, he preached last Sunday. Uh, you can check out our uh, website, towerviewkc.com, to, to listen to that. But uh, John did an amazing job last week of presenting to us the ministry of reconciliation and how that impacts us as a church and individuals. So, brother, thank you for faithfully preaching, and it's good to see you back in your normal chair, John, as you usually are, So, uh, as it is. I uh, just want to remind you, too, that uh, we are going to be going through the book of Mark almost every week this whole year. So be reading ahead, be praying, and, and be asking God what He would have for us as we do. Well, it is that time of year where it is, uh, the, the sermon title today is called God's Makeup Exam. And I want to share with you a lady who had a lot of makeup exams. I'm going to butcher her name. I promise you, I practice this, but I still mess it up. Here she is. This is Shosh Sassoon who became famous for her perseverance. Uh, this 68-year-old, well, this is in, she's 78 now, but 10 years ago, she became a woman in South Korea who after 950 times passed her licensure test, the written test of the license to drive a car. Did you catch that? 950 times. So, she took her first test in April of 2005, and 949 times later, she passed the minimum score in November of 2009. She spent over $4,200 on application fees that she now has set the record for the most paid for the written test and the amount of tests taken in South Korea. For comparison, I looked up what in America has been the most test taken, and they don't keep records of such things. But for you parents, you probably feel after the third time that was enough if you've been there. And you want so she passed the written test. The big question is, Pastor, did she pass the actual driving test? Well, 55 more times later, by God's grace, she passed the driving portion of her test in early spring of 2010. Wow. If you do not have your license, may this be encouragement for you to get your license. Let's just say that. <laughs> you know, perseverance is something we talk about all the time because perseverance is required for doing any goal. If you want to run a marathon, you don't just jump out there and go run a marathon. You, you train for it. That's why C.H. Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. And that is so true. The true church is always marked, and true Christians are always marked by perseverance, to devotion, and, and, and obedience, even under trial. Because it's not about us, it's all about Him. And isn't this what James chapter 1 talks about? 
James 1 reminds us, as you'll see on the screen, it says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And as we have read the Gospels, especially in Mark over these weeks, we feel like that driver over and over and over and over again. Because Jesus intentionally puts his disciples in places before people and in situations that are weird, abnormal, and and just funny at times to see how they react. And you remember Jesus in John chapter 2, the Baptist famous not verses, you know, when he turned water into wine. We'll let that be another sermon for another time. But he wanted to see what they would do. You remember this? The wine runs down, and, the, and Jesus' own mom comes to him and says, what are we going to do? And Jesus says, go tell him, fill it up here and do this and do that. And Jesus knew all along what he was doing, but he was testing them. Do you remember in Mark 4, those of you who were here, that Jesus sent out the disciples on the waves, and he knew a storm would come. In fact, the Bible says he commands all the storms that come, and yet at some point they had to learn, the disciples did, that they had to look to Jesus. Not their own strength and perseverance, but Jesus' perseverance in the midst of everything. Each one was made to do that. And it goes on and on and on and on. But the question is, when life is hard, when things make no sense, do you give way to doubt or do you preach the gospel of God's ever-present grace to yourself? Do you work hard to convince yourself that you're not weak or do you celebrate the grace that makes your weakness perfected in God's strength alone? And what could more motivation be to face hard times than what Jesus said in 2 Corinthians when He said, My grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. I am making you strong. And that's the big idea today. If you're visiting with us, the big idea is just a summary of the sermon that God tests us by how we deal with the failure of our test. Do you ever think of it that way? How many times as, as a parent, as those of you who are parents or grandparents, you remember a time when you know your kid did something wrong and then you give them another test just to see if they learn from their failure. It's exactly what God is going to do here. And after many years and little progress in the faith, I can tell you this, that my failure has had positive results as yours have too. There's less confidence in yourself and there's more confidence in God every time you fail a test. Our failure is His victory, our weakness is His strength, and our need of salvation is His ability to save. In every trial, God remains faithful. But these disciples are going to be reminded of some lessons they should have always learned before. So today, I want you to see three things. We're Baptists, that's what we do. But when we only see our problems, Jesus shows us these three things. He shows us His care, He shows us His provision, and He shows us His blessing. And as that great philosopher, baseball great Yogi Berra once said, if it feels like deja vu, it's all over again. I'll let you think about that for a second. If it feels like deja vu, it's all over again. And these disciples are going to feel that way. Because weren't we just here a few weeks ago? Didn't Jesus just feed 5,000 people? But now he's going to feed 4,000 people? But there's a big difference between these two. Mark chapter 8 is a make-up exam. I hated taking tests in school. God bless you all who are still in school. They still make me sweat and cringe. Standardized tests, just, oh my goodness. You know the information, but you just can't regurgitate it. I hated that stuff. 
but these disciples have already seen the hand of God feed 5,000 men and probably 15 to 20,000 people, and yet God is going to bring them back to the same place they were. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus said 5,000, and it was Jews, five loaves, two fish, and there was a large crowd, and there were 12 baskets left. But here in Mark chapter 8, he's feeding Gentiles. He's feeding people who shouldn't be in a Jewish mind, even touched by Jesus. But now there's seven loaves and a few fish. There's 4,000 men and a few, uh, probably 1,000 women and kids. He's with the crowd for three days, and there's only seven things left over. God is giving them, as that great driver, Shashun, found a makeup exam. Aren't you glad God gives you second chances? Aren't you grateful that even when you fall flat on your face before him, that he does this? And I pray that's what you learn today. I pray we learn that by divine direction, God puts us in tough situations for his glory, for his gospel, and the furtherance of his kingdom. If it was a small thing, we would not be brought to our knees. But how many times must the Lord issue a makeup exam in your life as it was in the disciples, simply because we did not learn to trust him the first time? With that in mind, will you join me in standing in honor of God's word if you're able this morning? We know that uh, we do a lot of up and down. That's our way to be Pentecostal for a bit. But uh, by God's grace, if you're able, stand with us this morning. Mark chapter 8, page 843 in the Blue Pew Bible, if you do not have it. We'll start in verse 1. It says, And in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some will have come from far away. And verse 4, his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they, that's the disciples, said seven. And in verse 6, he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Verse 9, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went into the district of Dal Manithua, or Manthua. Friends, of God's makeup exam. For some of you here today who do not know Jesus Christ, God has brought you into this place to hear, I pray, not just for the first time, maybe it is the gospel of Jesus, that he died for you, he was buried, and he rose again. You need to repent and believe that gospel. But if you're a Christian here today, thank God for his grace. Thank God that he doesn't just do one and done like an NCAA basketball tournament, like you lost the game, oh, you're done for this year. That God, by grace, through his spirit, draws us closer to himself, not without consequence for sin, there is, certainly, but that he draws us closer to himself. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of redemption. But with that comes makeup exams. Let's bow our heads and pray this morning as we start. Father, as we come before you, we are grateful that you do not leave us as we are. Father, you should have left us as we were. We are rebels. We are worse than that. We are enemies of the cross. We are at enmity with you. We have broken that relationship from our father, first father Adam, as John so well put last week. But thank you, Lord, that in your son alone, Jesus, there is forgiveness of sin. 
and that, Lord, being in you, we have seen that there is grace upon grace, that, Father, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Father, we know these things to be true, those of us who are in Christ, yet, Lord, at the same time, we acknowledge our weaknesses, our failures, our, our inaptitudes. Father, we, we are needy people, as we should be. But, Father, we thank you. You are not a needy God, but you are always the powerful one, the faithful one who leads us by your Spirit to deeper and deeper sanctification and to be more like Jesus and fit us for heaven. Thank you, Lord, for these truths today. As we learn from the disciples, may we learn also what this means for us and our church and how we live this out in this world today. We pray this all for God's glory. In Jesus' name we ask. God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, as we come before this, I, 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 this it's just amazing to me that, that you just think about that, guys. Second chances. Some of you all have been so hurt by so many people, or you have done the hurting to so many people, perhaps, and you look back and say, you know, if I could have just done that this way, or if I, if I would have just said it this way, or if I would have just whatever, and you have regrets that you carry all of your life, I am grateful that God, in His providence, in His time, often gives us what we are going to approach today. But when we only see problems, Jesus shows us first off His care. Notice what it says here in verse 1 as we start out, Jesus' care for us. It says very clearly that in those days, uh, remember, we're coming off of two miraculous healings. We saw about three weeks ago the healing of the Syrophoenician woman who, who Jesus called the dog, and she said, yes, Lord, but even dogs eat bread from your table, the, the scraps from your table. We saw a couple weeks ago about the blind man who was, uh, I'm sorry, the mutant deaf man who was healed, and God opened his eyes, and that was a picture of the gospel, but now Jesus shows us his care. He's still walking around the Decapolis, these 10 cities that were of Greek influence, but now he's in a very specific desolate place. I don't know what your scripture says there, but it's pretty clear that they had a great crowd, and this is out probably in the middle of nowhere. How big is the crowd? Probably about fifteen to 20,000, maybe more, maybe less, but uh, they only counted the men back then. But Jesus' presence is like a magnet. It's a, I mean, can you imagine a Christian walking into a Muslim country today, as weird as this may seem, and, and all the Muslims being surrounding that Christian? That's how anti-cultural this would have been. This Jewish man who comes from that place, that snooty place, from a Gentile perspective over there, they were at his feet for three solid days. Can you imagine a sermon that would go that long? But they had nothing to eat. It speaks of their hunger. They, their food was going away, but they wanted to stay with him because they realized that this man spoke truth. Some were there certainly for the miracles and show us a sign, but, but, but these people came because they saw that Jesus cared for them. They had heard about the healings and, and all the things, even things not recorded in Scripture. It's a reminder to us that Deuteronomy says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. These people had realized that it wasn't just physical bread they sought. It was, as Jesus called himself, the bread of life. And like a newborn babe, they longed for the spiritual milk of God's Word, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. But notice there in verse 2, the compassion that Christ has. He even says that. Remember, Jesus came to teach and to preach. Jesus didn't come to do miracles. That's part of the overall package of His Messiah ministry, Messianic ministry. But Jesus called His disciples to Himself. 
The makeup exam starts. I hate pop quizzes. I hate standardized tests. I even more so hate makeup exam because it makes you feel bad twice, doesn't it? Usually. Especially if you didn't study the second time like you should have the first. But you notice in verse 1 it says he called his disciples. I want to... That word called, guys, is the same word used in Mark 3 that he called his disciples uh, out and, and, and to be his followers. It's a sovereign call, a command here specifically. He calls his disciples near to him. The question is, have they learned anything? They've seen a lot, they've experienced a lot, but have they gotten it this time? And he said to them, I have compassion. Now, in 21st century America on social media, if you put I have compassion on Facebook, people are going to look at you and be like, you prideful guru, what are you talking about? Hey, you just don't talk about that stuff. You just go and do it. But this isn't just any guy on social media in the 21st century. This is the God-man, Jesus Christ, who sees not only the physical needs, but in his divine omniscience sees every spiritual need that is before them. He says, I have compassion, and this shows a window into the recesses of his heart. The humble Jesus looks upon us, his creation, with pity and tenderness. And you've seen it on the screen. Guys, be reminded that God sees your life, he knows your life, and he cares for your life. Praise God for that. Because if you were to pray, as many Muslims are right now, and some of you all have seen this on Facebook, but right now our, our Muslim friends around the world are in the midst of, many of you know, called Ramadan. It's a month set apart based on calendar each, each year, usually in the summertime, in our summertime at least, where they don't eat from sunrise to sundown, which as you know, that's really a long time, and, and you can't eat at all. They're praying that, that God would reveal them, himself to them, and if you're a Christian, this sounds funny, but you pray that those Muslims during this time come to know Jesus Christ. Guys, Muslims are not our enemy. Mormons are not our enemy. The culture is not our enemy. The enemy are those, um, those in any church anywhere who say, I'm a Christian, but walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. The enemy is from within. The enemy is not from without. Well, Darren, what about all the politics and Muslim extremists? Yes, pray that they come to know Jesus. That's all we can pray. Because the same God who had compassion on these Gentiles, who he should have had nothing to do with, is the same God who had compassion on our souls when we were yet rebels against him. He, go, he knows, he sees, and he cares. Our God, and know this, our God is not a stoic. You ever met one of those people, like the Royals win the World Series, and they're like, yeah, woo, great, let's go eat, eat a sandwich. Or watch me drink this glass of water. I mean, life is just like, here it is. God is not like that. Our God is not stoic. He cares for you even in the moments when it seemed like no one else does. When we worry, we don't believe the truth about God because when we doubt that God sees, we doubt that God knows, and we doubt that God cares, we doubt that He's able to do anything that He says He can do. And friends, we have not run our race well if we've been unconcerned about the whereabouts and condition of other runners along the way. What I love about this is Jesus didn't just zero in on one person. He zeroed in on everybody. That is a compassionate God. Now, we believe, as the Baptist faith message says, that God knows those who are His, First Timothy 2, that He has selected those that, that are His. We can, but what that is, you can debate that till the cows come home. But one thing we know for sure is God cares about all. Darren, why do the wicked still rule today? Because God is having compassion on them. They've turned themselves over to sin, and God hasn't just cut them off. He's giving them compassion. 
even in their sin. God cares for us in many ways. In His faithfulness, God cares enough for you to continue working in you until it's done. In His Word, God cares for you by unreal, un- unraveling the mysteries you would never have known on your own apart from His grace. In His patience, God cares enough for you to find you where you are no matter what you bring to the table. God cares, God sees, God knows. Now, I don't know about you, but this word in the Greek should give you goosebumps. It is not something that Jesus is just like, oh, I've got to do my good deed for the week. This is His nature all the time. As they weep, He weeps. As, as they have feelings, He has feelings back. Matthew 14 said He had compassion on them. Mark 6 said He had compassion on them, and He taught them. And John 11 says that famous verse all of us have memorized, Jesus wept. Guys, our God is not a stoic God, and you can take that to the bank. Well, notice verse 3. So what happens? Jesus tells them, I have compassion on them. They've been with me now for three days. And he tells them the, the, the truth. If I send them away, and this is out in the wilderness, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some have come far away. Jesus addresses his disciples to awaken them to feel as he feels. Because so many times, us as Christians don't do that. We see a need, we, 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 we acknowledge the need, but we don't quite go meet the need in whatever that is. And Jesus tells them, if you don't feel my compassion, then you won't feel and be able to minister in the way I want you to. That's why compassion for people, and I don't mean this in some social justice, neo-Marxist kind of cultural thing. What I mean is, is biblical social justice. Not a political party backing it, not a, not, a, not a group backing it, but a thing that sees people as God sees people. Everyone with dignity, everyone created in His image, everyone important in His eyes. Not classism, not elitism, not racism, but, but biblical compassion. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't just die for purple people? Jesus didn't die for Hispanic people, African Americans, Caucasians, whatever. Jesus died for all, that all may come to Him. And that is the compassion He is trying to teach them. Notice Jesus doesn't say, well, go and get this certain group of people because, you know, they're more special. No, what He does is is He takes the gospel out to all. Now, God knows those who are His and He has a special love for them, but the general grace of God shows us that He cares for all. Romans 1, Psalms talk about this. Look, people will forget your brilliance, but they'll never forget your compassion in the name of Jesus Christ. As we see compassion in Him, may we pray, God, would you grow that compassion in me? Same compassionate Savior who prays for us, and and what it means for us, guys, is that He doesn't leave us where we are. He truly does care. He truly does care. You know, I'm reminded of a story. Derek McMurdy, our, 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 our share team leader, is preaching at another church this morning, but this picture reminds me of Derek so much. I, sp- I think I spent a lot of time trying to find this picture more than I should have. But if you know Derek, this is Derek, his beard. And Richard Ream, wherever he's at, he had a beard like this a few months ago. But the story is told about a pastor that got up in the pulpit and apologized for the big Band-Aid on his face. He said, I was thinking about my sermon while shaving and cut my face. But afterwards, the great treasurer found a note in the collection plate that says, next time, pastor, think about your face and cut the sermon instead, as it is. So we'll let that be what it is. 
We may get a lot of things backwards as Christians, but friends, one thing we can never get backwards, actually two things, is that Jesus really does care for us. He really does care about what you are going through, where you are, and what situation you find yourself, and whatever may be coming your way. The second thing is, is that make no mistake about it, it is a gospel waste of time to worry about whether God is near you, He hears you, and He cares for you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And I don't need a prosperity preacher to confirm that to me. My Bible already does that fine. Thank you very much. The gospel is this truth. Have you prayed what God would have you do to show the same care that God has shown for you in a human, sin-filled way to the people around you? Have you prayed, God, who is it that I need to have compassion on this week to care for about the same way you have? Well, notice secondly, when, when we only see problems, Jesus shows us first off care, but second off, he shows us provision or resource or taking care of us. I want you to notice there in verse 4, you notice these callous disciples. You guys, they've been here before. you got to think, as we get ready to read verse 4, one of them has to get this. Jesus has just divinely set them up. You ever walked into that before where you're talking to someone and they're really good with words and you walk right into their verbal trap and you thought, oh man, I'm doing it again. I don't know if all these disciples got it. They're speaking as a group, but you got to think somewhere in the back of their minds, one of them's thinking, didn't we just do this a few months ago? Notice verse four. He says, and it says, and his disciples answered him. Isn't this the same thing they said? And how can we feed these people of bread in this desolate place? But guys, Jesus just answered this a few months ago. How quickly we forget. How, how quickly we forget. Just months ago, they had seen the feeding of 20,000 people. The city of Gladstone, I think, is about 20,000. Some of y'all live there. I don't know. 20,000 people. Now, we would think that's awesome. We would, the hospitality crew would love that on Easter breakfast and other things we do. The bread just keeps coming. The fish just keep coming. How, who could forget? If it was pizza, I'd never forget that. I could promise you that. But one thing is true. These guys just missed it. How in the world do you go from this to that? That Jesus, you know, if you're playing softball, saying you softball, this is just that lob right in front. It's coming down. It's a softball question. Home run. Well, Jesus, you're the provider. And then they just go, whoa, and they miss it. How is this working? Their minds, as Colossians 3, 2 reminds us, are not set on things above. They are set on things of this earth. They're counting the coins. They're counting everything, saying, well, how are we going to pay for this? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do this? Whatever, 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 whatever. Friends, what in your life is it that seems so impossible? What is it? What is so impossible that God has to remind you that He is able to break through whatever it is? Now, I want to catch myself before I say it. Darren, that sounds like more like the TV preacher. That sounds like someone who comes from the pulpit. Guys, that is not true. Don't take, don't let what those who abuse the Word of God do take away from the promises that God has given. God has reminded us that nothing is impossible for Him within and consistent with His character, His ways, and His will. But what is it in your life today that you would like these disciples, like these disciples, need to say, Lord, how are you going to do that? Lord, how are we going to win grace more and, and Maple Park to Jesus? Lord, there's a need around me and I can't meet it, so what are we going to do? 
Well, praise God, it's an opportunity as these disciples are going to show us that you can only be explained by God's grace. Notice here as we go to verse 5. I want to go through a list of things, and these I'm just going to apply this as we go. I didn't know any other better way to break this up. I'm going to give you about 12 or 13 things. They're short, but I want you to get what Jesus is doing here as we see his provision, and also our third point after that, his blessing. First, I want you to see that Jesus is a commanding Lord. He shows us this by asking his disciples. The way Jesus takes care of us is often by questioning us. Notice verse 5. He asks them, how many loaves do you have? Now, come on, Jesus. Really? You're God. You know all things. Why are you asking this question? Jesus knows all. He's not asking for info, but he wants them to conduct an internal audit of themselves. And notice they don't go and say, yeah, Jesus, you're right. It's all you. What do they say? Seven. Just like good Baptists, they have a report for everything from online attendance to non-attendance to attendance to how many uh, uh, crackers were eaten by the kids in Sunday school. They've got it all. And he gives them that. And Jesus wants them to see how lacking and limited they are. They can't meet the needs of these people and what they have to offer. It's like when someone comes up to to us at church and says, you know, I can't serve in this area. Have you asked the Lord to, to... have you asked the Lord whether you can use you in that area? You might be surprised. Some of y'all are serving in places now in the church that 10 years ago you would have laughed like Sarah with Abraham and said, that's just silly, Lord. I can't do that. But guys, this is the purpose. All ministry, all serving, all sharing for Jesus is impossible outside the blessing of Jesus Christ. And what he reminds us is, is the purpose of this is that they would know what John fifteen five says, I am the vine, you are the branches. In me you will bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nada. Notice secondly what the Lord reminds us about this. He directed his people, secondly. He directs his people. Look at verse 5. He had them set down on the ground. Do you remember the last time we studied this, the 5,000, that he had the disciples set them down? But Jesus just takes the bull by the horns and says, look, guys, you're obviously not getting this. I'm going to take over here, and he has them sit down. The first time the disciples were, but Jesus does it all here. He had to show them that they sometimes have to be reminded they cannot do things in their own strength. These people were to sit down and be served. It's a reminder of Romans 11 that from him, through him, and to him are all things. He goes and reminds us third, he, he takes the loaves. Why is that so important? You notice that there in verse 6, and he took the seven loaves, and everything had to be taken by his hands. You you see that symbolism there? He doesn't ask the disciples for their help. He has to get down to the basics and say, look, it's all in my hands or it's nothing. It's all going to be done by me, disciples, or it's nothing. It all had to be put in his hands before the miracle would take place. Church, that's exactly what we have to do as a church. Every tradition we have, every program we have, every ministry we have, every pastor we have, every dollar we have in this church must be fully, completely surrendered and placed in the hands of Jesus for it to be effective at all. There must be an assigning of everything into the Lord. He won't bless it until it's out of our hands and into His. Isn't that why your children... Your grandchildren, your would-be children, for those of you uh, seeking to have be married someday, your business, your ministry, your, your, your livelihood, your everything is in His hands and blessed, or it's outside of His hands and not blessed. 
That's why we cannot save souls. That's why if you're not a Christian here today, you are not saved because someone brought you to church. You're saved because you repented and believed the gospel because it wasn't based on you. It's all based upon Him. But notice what Jesus did there in verse 6. He gave thanks. He gave thanks. He gave to them. He broke it, and He gave His disciples, and they set it before the crowd. He gave thanks. Why is that important? It tells us no matter how small something is, we should give thanks to God, 1 Thessalonians 5. Have you taken an inventory outside of Thanksgiving? Can you believe Thanksgiving's in six months? Isn't that awesome? Some of y'all are already ready to eat. Please don't post your Thanksgiving photos. We're all eating the same stuff, so it's okay. But at the same time, what is it in your life that like Jesus, you have to say, Lord, even today, this is all yours? Number six, he, he, he broke the lows. He broke them into many pieces, and friends, when he acts, he acts decisively. Jesus acts in a decisive manner. He does what he does. I'm going to go quickly here for sake of time. And then he gave them to the disciples to multiply the loaves. He gave them to the disciples. So, but, but why would he give it to the disciples? I thought he was going to do it all himself. Because now he's reminding them that there's a point at which the work has to be done by them for his glory and his plan. What was left in his hands was supernaturally multiplied. All the disciples were doing were being the messengers, were being the messengers. Little as much if it's in the Lord's hands. And it taught them about the ministry. And that's why some pastors stay at a church. And this is Nathaniel and I were talking about this as he was going down to preach at this other church this weekend. He said, you know, uh, the average pastor leaves at year three. And do you know the greatest ministry often happens, if you believe the statistics, in ministries four to seven? There's always a major conflict in years two or three. There's always some just, you know, the marriage is long since, the honeymoon's long since gone away. Friends, that's why no matter who God puts in this pulpit, we love and we care for one another because the greatest ministry is not based on our strategy. It's based on God using the very things that He blesses, and that is faithfulness. I am your pastor, and I'm going to fail you a million times over more than you know. And many of you have already experienced that. You're going to fail us as pastors a million times more than we know. But you know what we have? We have a faithful God who, who allows us to play a part in this ministry that He gives. And what He reminds us is here is that the ministry that goes forth is the ministry that first started in His hands and goes forth to God's people. And then He tells them, He, he serves them to the people. He involves the disciples at a greater level. They're the ones dishing it out. They're not cooks, but they're waiters. They're not short-order cooks or whatever. But this, the application here is very obvious. All Christ's disciples simply have to take what we are. We don't have to come up with a new message. We don't have to make it look pretty or glamorous. We just simply take the Word of God to God's people all around, the people God knows who are His, and share the gospel, and we follow up, and we love, and we serve, and we leave it in God's hands. But, Darren, what about the, the latest, greatest strategy? You know what? 18 years ago was a purpose-driven life. I was at Savers and Liberty this week. You know how many purpose-driven life books I found on the shelf? Probably like 27. Seriously. If I wanted Rick Warren to sign every one of them, I could get them all for like a penny. Friends, it's not the latest, greatest strategy. The strategy is simple. It's faithful people loving, sharing, going, and just doing that. Do we have programs? Yes. Do we have ministries? Yes. But it's us being ambassadors for Jesus that changes the world. 
We can build the biggest building. We can have the biggest, greatest programs. But if God's hand's not in it, it means nothing. And notice what he did there. He blesses the fish. See that there in verse 7. He blesses it. So we are the middlemen. We stand between the source and the warehouses are full and full of the world's needs. And it's an endless supply. But God, by his grace, feeds truth upon truth upon truth. Look, the church in that day would meet in catacombs. Some of y'all have been there in, in, in the European cities. They didn't have deep pockets. They were the minority. They were scattered. They had so little, but they turned the world upside down. We don't need to make America great again. We need to make Christianity great again because we need to realize that God is the great God of Christianity, church. I hope you understand that. America could crash and burn, and if we as a church are faithful, then let it crash and burn. And I mean that. If what we do is being faithful to what God says, that involves no political party. That is simply being faithful to what God has called us to do. And if God changes the land and ends abortion, praise God for that. But friends, our victories are not made in Washington, D.C. The victory was made on Calvary when he said, it is finished, go ye therefore. And what he is reminding them of is that they have few and small things, that he keeps blessing it and blessing it and blessing it and blessing it. Should you pray for your politicians? Yes. Should you follow your government as long as it's biblical? Yes. Should you as a Christian care more about what happens in the church than in politics? Yes. We'll let that sit in for a second. Well, Darren, you're just a young man. You don't understand. No, I love World War II history. My daddy has served in the... It's not about that, friends. It is about a church that needs to reclaim the power of the gospel less than the power of Washington, D.C. And I speak to myself as a pastor doing that because I understand that that is a balance that we have to fight. And notice here that he ordered the fish to be served. No matter how great the need is, he kept filling that need. Well, Darren, what happens when, when, when they don't want the message anymore? What happens when we share the message of the gospel and they just don't want it anymore? You keep sharing the gospel. What happens when that message just isn't as cool as it used to be? I mean, we got some people in, but what do we do from there? You keep loving and sharing and praying and serving all those people. Why? Because God has given us everything that we need. I hope you see that. For sake of time, Andy, we're just going to skip to the next part. I want to go to number three. I've spent more time on some points, and I knew this would happen, but let's go to number three for sake of time. I want you to see how Jesus not only cares, He provides, but I want you to see the blessings. Notice here in verse 8 what happened. After Jesus did all this work, the disciples followed. What happened to the people? They ate and they were satisfied. Some of y'all, that's great cooking. Some of y'all, that's, that's good stuff. Can you imagine what that, if Jesus would have opened a restaurant, would he, would, would he have had a five-star review? At least for one day. But what happened is these people were not only being fed spiritually, they were also being fed, of course, physically. And you see that here. The best, it was the best bread they'd ever eaten. It was perfect bread. The best fish, it doesn't taste like if you've gone fishing lately, like in a pond, like that, that kind of, that, you know what I'm talking about, the bottom, you got that bottom, like muddy feeling, yeah, it's just, ooh, you know, and I love fish, I love crappie and all that good stuff, but he immediately satisfied them on the spot. He immediately, and, and friends, that everything that we would preach and teach, that that alone would satisfy the hearts of empty people. 
That's why the greatest need of a church is not to be theatrical. Look, I can get up here and attempt to tell you jokes. Y'all are going to laugh at me anyway because I look funny, but it is what it is. We can get up here and have the best dramas. We can get up here and have the best everything. But if Jesus is not the center of it, people in the scheme of things as Christ would have will not be satisfied the way they should be satisfied. They'll be satisfied. Isn't that what 2 Timothy 4 talks about? There will come a time when people won't put up with sound teaching, but because of their itching ears, they will bring around them teachers to say what they want to say and do what they want to do. But Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he believes in me will never thirst. Friends, we don't have an inferior product as Christians. We don't have to market it. We don't have to throw it in with some mixer of things. We bring the only message that will make sense in every context of every place of everything. That's why the prosperity gospel is hogwash. Because it doesn't fit that African family whose, whose cow died, whose, whose water is tainted, and you go in and just say, give $100 and God will give you 1000 That's hogwash. The Bible says that Jesus is good for every race, every culture, everywhere, and that is the message we need to be sending out. That's why if you're here today and you struggle with assurance of salvation, you don't need to be baptized again. You don't need to be saved again. If you were truly saved in Jesus, you were truly saved in Jesus because you don't have an inferior product, you have the, the greatest news the world has ever known. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice what he does. Even in the midst of all this, Jesus blesses his servants. See that there. They picked up a large basket of seven. This basket is so large. Some of y'all know this history. Paul, when he was in Acts, he got lowered down from the windows in a basket this isn't, uh, my wife informed, I don't know if this is true, we had a good friend of ours that collects Longenberger baskets. Some of y'all do that, maybe. And our friend has literally like hundreds of Longenberger baskets. We're not talking like one of those. We're talking like one of those things, uh, in my mind's eye, that you picture like a power washer on the side of a window. Like they put up a cage, you know what I'm talking about? And they lower it down floor by floor. This basket is so big. They have seven of these that you could fit a grown man inside of them. That's how much provision God gave them in the blessing. The more they gave, the more they received. And those who serve the Lord have the greatest blessing. There's nothing left over for them that God cannot provide. Look, I guarantee you in every Bible study, those who are the ones who are blessed are the ones who come ready to receive God's Word. Those ones who come despite health or, or whatever, those who come even though you feel like a wreck and a mess and you're drowning in your own sinfulness, those who come to Jesus as such are the ones who receive the greatest blessing because they see the greatest need that can only be filled in Christ. And you notice there in verse 9, as we get ready to close out here, that Jesus dismissed the people. I mean, come on, Jesus. Again, Jesus, what in the world are you thinking? If you would just build a church right there, Jesus, you bring the bread, you bring the water, you bring the people, Jesus, wow, you're the best church planner, strategizer, revitalizer, replanter we've ever seen in our lives. If we were Baptists, we would have voted Jesus in as lead pastor and asked him to start the building program right there, amen? Because he does that, but he doesn't do that. Jesus often does what we don't think he should do. He sends them away because Jesus is showing them, as, he, as you well know, that real life is lived in the trenches, Real life of the blessing of God is not found in the safety net. That's why as a pastor, I love conferences. You all 
Uh, I'll be going to the Southern Baptist Conference down in Dallas for about a day and a half, or actually a couple days in June. Thank you for the opportunity to do that, to, to be a part of our, our, our national convention down there. But you can go and hear the best preaching all day. You can go to conference after conference after conference, and there are people called conference junkies. Like every conference they sign up for, they have books coming out everywhere. That's not bad. But at some point, you've got to real, live real life, don't you? Remind you of the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember this? They go up on the mountain, and Jesus uh, transfigures himself, and Elijah appears, and, and uh, uh, Moses appears, and, and Peter's like, let's just set up a tent right here, Jesus. Come on, let's get it done. And all of a sudden, reality comes back down, and they go back down to the world. Why does Jesus send them away? I mean, really, if he's smart, this is where it all says, Jesus, you're going to be in the top 100 fastest-growing churches right here. Just get it done, Jesus. But friends, Jesus reminds them that that is not real life. It is. It really happened. The miracle really happened. But what a joy it was here to be for three days, but you can't live in such a state. All of us have to be strengthened and endured to go back as we remember that Jesus cares, that Jesus provides, and Jesus blesses. I'm going to have a, I keep saying Andy, Adam, I'm sorry, you'll wring my neck afterwards, all the A's in the Nisley family. As we close, I'm just going to put these up. These are four pastoral concerns from this passage for us. I, I've, I knew I had more notes than I had time to deal with, and I want to respect our time as we do. But friends, what does this mean for us? I've given some application along the way, but uh, I, I want us to remember at least four things. Number one, our fellowship here is so sweet. If you're visiting, I pray you experience that a little bit here today. This church family loves each other in a way that we can only, um, only by God's grace. What draws us together is, is the fact that Jesus died for our sins. But may we never lose sight of the darkness and the penetrating the, the darkness that we have on our shoulders. May our sweet fellowship not be that mountaintop experience that never finds its way back in the valley, so to speak. You know, some, uh, I've heard someone say in recent days, not here, but another friend say, I work for an unsaved, non-Christian man. I think I'm going to look for a new job. Actually, that might be the best job God's ever placed you in because that might be the best place you can ever represent him in. I'm concerned also that we pray for our church that everything is not just a Christian this or that. Number two, a holy huddle. You know, there are well-intended businesses in our area that put out a guide for all the Christian people of all the Christian things and all that you can go Christian. You could, you could literally live in a subculture of Christianity in our Northland area if you wanted to. That's not bad. Especially raising children away from the world, that's not a bad thing. But friends, do we lose sight of going into the world and being the darkness, being the light to the dark world? Or do we, do, do we have friends that are non-Christians? I mean, it sounds so funny, doesn't it? But do we have any friends that are truly not Christians? Or are all of our friends Christians? And please hear me clearly. We do not. We, we need to make sure those closest to us who speak truth of God to us are Christians. But has our holy huddle become so holy huddle that we forgot that there are people outside that need Jesus? Third, the disciples had to learn to go back into the world. For some of y'all, Sunday morning should be the most refreshing day of your week. It really should be. You need to be reminded of God's truth. I need to be reminded of God's truth. But let us all in our community here be with those who, who, who get fired up for Jesus here. And even on Thursday afternoon when you're ready for the weekend, whatever your shift is or retired or whatever it is, that you say, Lord, I want to keep going because there are people who need me, who need Christ. And finally, you don't have to have fish or bread in your hands. All you have is your life. God bless it. God grow it. God multiply it. 
God satisfy me through it, God strengthen me through it, and God help me serve you in it. That's what it's all about, guys. I'm not against church growth programs necessarily. I'm not against strategy, but I am against, and I had to really go before the Lord with this as we're planning things to the future and we're taking that next Sunday night, 5 o'clock, our monthly fellowship about our future plans and all the things we're talking about. As pastor this week, I had to go before the Lord and say, God, let these plans fail at every end if we get off the step of making disciples and sharing the gospel and loving the saints. And I don't know if that's the case or if that's happened, but I pray that we, we, we keep that focus. The greatest churches, the greatest missionaries, the greatest followers of Christ are not people who are in the limelight who get to speak in front of thousands. It's people like ourselves who are faithful to the task. Wherever God's called us, He will provide. Let's go before the Lord as we pray.